Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. My name is Russell Brand, that's what I'm called. And on this episode, I'm talking to my friend, Biet Simkin. Biet is a world-renowned meditation teacher. As a musician, she weaves together, this is what her website says, and what Demaya, who works with us, has put together. For She weaves the world of pop culture, spirituality, teaching, and pa- practical applications of ancient spiritual wisdom. Now, she is, I mean, you're going to, in a minute, you're going to hear her on the podcast and see her, and she certainly is very impressive. She's got a new book out called Don't Just Sit There. It's a, a, a kind of, uh, what would I say, a translation of the famous fourth way technique about which we talk in this podcast um i don't really like Biet, and we do later in the podcast we do some of these breathing exercises that i've done with her like on zoom and they're pretty effective and i would recommend you do them they're a good accompaniment as with the like wim hof stuff you know a bit of breath stuff with a meditation it's good particularly those of you that like a little high you're right jengo <laughs> why did you look at me when you said that well, no, that I don't think of you as a person that needs a little high, but I do think of you as a person that's wearing special spectacles now. Yeah. What are they about? They're blue light glasses. Is this because of spiritual, what was that show called? Spiritual. Social <laughs> Dilemma. No, I got it before then. There was a period where I couldn't see words on white backgrounds. Cause, <laughs> cause couldn't you? What did you see on white backgrounds? Black squiggles. Just black squiggles. <laughs> the, the rem- white, the language white. just melted down. The white was too powerful. And since you've got these new special <laughs> X-ray specs, <laughs> how, how are you getting on with the old squiggles now? Legible I don't know if, system of interrelated signs. I think the science is out on it. Mm. Blue. But what is it doing? It's filtering out blue light. Yeah. Apparently, my moisturizer does it too. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> You need a bit more blue light in your life. I'll tell you, the blue lights you'll be seeing is the blue lights of an ambulance as you're carted off into a loony bin where you'll frankly belong, Django. Here's some comments from our wonderful podcast with Yanis Varoufakis. (laughs) Joey, now, Yanis came on the podcast the other day. Wasn't he terrific? Yeah, I like him. Yeah, do you? Good, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Joey W. Lagazino go, fantastic exclamation mark. The last time we had Yanis on was great. He's such a smart and interesting dude. Yeah, he is. He's amazing. He's uh, got a lot of the answers, that dude. Via Natural Medicine, loved it. Two of the smartest people I've heard speaking about the most important human concepts. Brain, light bulb, brown looking heart. That heart looks like the type of heart of real blood. You know, like how blood go a little bit brown. Isn't that when it dries? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when it dries. What are you going to do? Leave it there, dilute it, keep it wet, keep dribbling and into the blood? Huh? <laughs> clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> no. If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's blood, just let it hang out too. Isn't that the technique, Jen? No? No. Are you sure? Yeah. What do you know about blood? <laughs> Limerick Tai Chi, my two favourite people in one part. Look, basically, people liked it. Jane Chair, another great episode. People liked it. If there were any social media posts that said we didn't like it, we frankly wouldn't recreate them. So there you go. I mean, why would you follow someone on social media only to make... What? Get... A hobby. (laughs) A life-affirming hobby. If you're spending even a second of your life Going down a social media thing, going, no, I don't agree with that, right? Do you know how many times I've done that in my life? None! Sure? Yeah. Never said anything. I've never commented on another person's social media feed in my life, other than to say, well done, carry on, keep on being you. Like, smiley face. What about the trues era? I don't think even then, because I was very busy making the truths. <laughs> had a lot to focus on. I mean, admittedly, I said some things through that truths here that are pretty provocative, Jen, didn't I? Yeah. Let's list some of them. Everything's a load of old bollocks. Don't, don't trust vote. No, don't vote. Load of stuff. Vote for Ed Miliband. Are you trying to provoke me? <laughs> no, are you I'm doing just some rude. of those comments? No. I was you, there. <laughs> Have you got a sock puppet account? <laughs> you, do people say sock puppets? I don't say you know? nice things or bad things. You don't say nice things or bad things. You, perhaps you have transcended. Yeah. Perhaps since you've had the blue light glasses, Jen, you've found something akin to enlightenment. If you don't follow me on social media, do, even though it's obviously incredibly bad for you. And I won't appreciate anything other than absolute mindless sycamore Not sycamore necessarily. Praise. Praise me like you should, in the words of Fatboy Slim. Is, was it him or no? It's that female vocalist that he sampled. 
you know, I'm on all of the different ones. Tickety tock, link us in Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. I put a lot of spiritual videos up on Instagram, on uh, YouTube, don't I? And actually, as a matter of fact, if you want an email from me, you'll get one by going to russellbrand.com, signing up for the mailing list, and by God, you can participate in a Zoom call. And they're good, aren't they, those Zoom calls, Demaya? Funny? Yes, yes, very funny. Insightful. Why don't we put, we're going to put up a clip from them, aren't we? Oh, what one? <laughs> we were going to show you after this. Oh, what? We're going to show you after this. <laughs> after this, what are you going to show me? God, what a really professional what group. Said. I like us being colleagues. I think we're working together as a good team. Okay, should we listen to Biet now? I've told you, have I told you everything? Here, make sure, yeah, sign up to our mailing list. We do these Q&A Zoom calls. We've given money to people like uh, the Union Mission on Skid Row, Treasures for uh, women uh, with addiction issues. Um, who else? Yeah. BAC O'Connor. All, I would say, terrific causes. Are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Stay up to date. With ways to get plugged in, <laughs> emboldened. <laughs> Did you write that, Demaya? I fixed it. Oh, oh plugged in. <laughs> yeah, because it was in the continuous. It was in the infinitive. It, it was in the... Yeah, it was yeah. like to plug in. <laughs> With ways to get plug in. <laughs> you want to get the plug in? Yeah, I want to get the plug in. Oh, yes, please. Um, okay, and also look at, yeah, you know, you know, just do what you want, actually. Let's, you know that's really what I want, is for you to be happy. I want you to be happy. That's what I want. So let's, let's we listen to the wonderful Biet now, wonderful uh, breath exercises, interesting conversations on the nature of awakening, enlightenment, addiction, abstention, uh, hedonism. It's all in there, and you, I believe, will love it. If you enjoy Under the Skin... That's, you know, just carry on doing that. I don't need you to do anything else for me. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. But yeah, thank you very much for joining me on Under the Skin. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed doing the breathing exercises we've been doing together. And I'd like to start by talking about those, if that's uh, convenient or suitable for you. What are those exercises? (laughs) You know, I've studied for a very long time, uh, originally with my father, and then questing more and more for aliveness and in my quest for being alive which I don't know if you can relate but as a former heroin addict I feel like much of my religious faith was that of self-destruction I really believed in self-destruction and I thought self-destruction was um, something that brought me closer to death right like you would think you do a bunch of heroin you do a bunch of cocaine you do them at the same time you're close to death right But ironically, what I found on the spiritual path is that that actually took me away from death. It was bringing me to it, but in a fake way. And that's kind of why there was no real results from doing it that way. It wasn't like, oh, I did a bunch of heroin and then I was like, that's it. I found enlightenment, you know. So so as I was questing for my aliveness, what I found on that path was tricks that allowed me to actually come closer to death. And as I became closer to my death, I realized that it wasn't like I had always thought death was this thing that was coming any minute, one day, like one day I'm going to die and it could happen any minute. And that really frightened me. And as I did more and more of this, um, this breath work, I found that actually my death was not something that was impending. It wasn't something that was coming. Instead, it was actually something that I was currently experiencing and I had been experiencing from the moment I was born and everything I had done up until that point was an effort to not be present to the fact that I was dying every minute what do you mean by death and why I mean obviously I know what you mean by death but why is death significant in this context and what do you mean trying to bring about death and why do you see there being a a corollary between death and awakening and enlightenment I guess it's because I feel like if you look at life, the way people live it when they're 
not living it fully, not fully embodied, not fully in a state of bliss, not fully pursuing their vision, all that, that kind of shadowy, like hiding from their own light kind of stuff that we all, you know, all do pieces of. Whenever we're doing that, I believe we're doing it in effort to pretend like we're not gonna die. Like that, you know what I mean? Like we're buffering, we're buffering with ice cream, we're buffering with sex, we're buffering with heroin, we're buffering with a crappy job, we're buffering with a crappy relationship. And we buffer, 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 but what are we really hiding from? And what I realized on my journey is that what we're hiding from is that we are dying. But we're not dying one day, maybe at some point. We're actually dying right now. Every cell in our body is regenerating and we are becoming a completely new human being. And I think that that is risky and it feels really scary. And this breath work I find brings you into uh, almost a dance with that truth. If, when I think about my relationship with death and understanding of death, it's kind of about finality. So if death is regarded as an ongoing process, for me, it doesn't have the same uh, sting as the idea of, one day I'm going to die and there's not going to be no more Russell to look at Russell's stuff or move around the world being Russell. If death is a continuum, like as you're describing, it could just as easily be described as rebirth as, as death. And, 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 and therefore for me, it lacks that fundamental kind of venture into the unknown certainly in a kind of i don't know a binary way i was alive on november the third november the fourth i wasn't alive no more you know like it doesn't have that kind of finality about it now i do want to get into what my original question about the nature of these breath techniques but um i understand what you're saying we are dying death is a is a continuum because we're moving in that direction as surely and as inevitably as if we were falling but we don't i don't think i think i understand the reason people don't experience death that way because you wake up and you remember yesterday and all of that yeah yeah no of course i understand what you're saying i i think that what what makes it beautiful for me is okay i'm gonna die one day and yet as i know her and all her stuff and her relationship to her kids and her husband and whatever i have here on this planet that's very very precious to me will be gone, it'll be over. And um, that is actually incredibly sad. And there's a grieving, like when I look at my little baby, I have this baby that's almost two years old, and I look at her and I can feel that she's gonna die one day. I, I know that she's gonna die probably when she's like 90, but she's gonna die one day. And just that fact that I brought her into this world and that she's gonna die, it's very, um, it's very intense, it's very emotional for me. And um, in my meditations and with this breath work, I like to connect to the grief that I feel about that because I don't really believe time exists and all the work that I have done has shown me that time isn't really functioning the way that we perceive it to be, which means that I am in fact dying right now if the future is already happening in some way. Do you know what I mean? So I can already grieve that and grief has allowed me to feel pure joy so that's kind of the motive just in case anyone's listening and being like god this girl's morose like the point of all of this is that now because of this connection to my death and connection to the death of the people that i love most and because of my connection to that grief i feel joy all the time and that is the kind of i i think people are listening to your podcast because they're looking for ways to to reimagine reality to have a new experience with reality and that is exactly what we have found that's exactly what i have found and i'm excited to you know that's why we've been doing that breath together tell people about that breath yet what can i say i mean isn't it something you kind of got to do to yeah you got to do it to experience it but like you know i could still i think the same is true of like football or fellatio but i could give you a verbal description of either <laughs> okay um fair enough um i think the breath work that i guide is is ecstatic in that it c disconnects you from your mind for a brief period of time. And, mm. you know, people are always saying, and I've studied every form of meditation because I've been doing this stuff since I was in diapers, but that they're always saying, oh, you're just watching your thoughts. You're just watching your thoughts. You're letting them float by. Great, I do all of that as well. And of course, with Vedic practices and 
all of that is what you do. But with this practice, it literally shuts down the mind for a brief period of time, similar to the way an orgasm does that. And I believe it connects you to the organism of your sexuality and brings that sexy, juicy, like really intense energy that we almost don't know what to do with that falling in love sex energy. And it brings it up into the heart region. And we feel this ecstatic, you know, sensation. And, you know, I do these events with thousands of people all over the world when we're not trapped in our homes due to a global pandemic. And people will face plant like they'll faint in the audience. And at my events, sometimes at least 50% of the audience is weeping by the end of the experience. And I think it really is because it opens your heart center to such a degree that you feel more alive than you felt before you did the breath. That energy you're talking about, like this sort of, um, you know, feels comparable or somehow connected to sexual energy, uh, sort of uh, relates to ideas around Kundalini, that these primal creative drives that are required to motivate the animal, the most basic survival instincts within us can be transformed and redirected to hmm, higher is a sort of i suppose a hierarchical word but certainly a different purpose what i've felt when um we've done them exercises is um like i felt a suspension of individual awareness like i've i'm aware aware but i forget that i am russell i forget that i went here i did this i want that i don't want that these are my preferences like all of that is temporarily suspense now i reckon it might only be for a second two second three seconds but like it's sort of profound because the feeling i have when we do that is that 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 is an ongoing parallel consciousness the same way as that i could be listening to a, ra a rock radio station a hip-hop radio station or a talk radio station as if it's that that, that frequency is continually available i also feel like i was thinking how would like the same as i sort of feel like with psychedelics not that i've done psychedelics in a long time being in recovery but the same way i feel about psychedelics i feel like that you know materialists rationalists atheists that say no there is nothing else this is it this is your individual perception consciousness is an accident an evolved accident it's not a fundamental component of the universe i feel like they, if they had the experience of the, that breath work same way as you know if they were to take ayahuasca or dmt and think oh my fucking god my consciousness just morphed and did stuff that i didn't know it was capable of doing i'm feeling different stuff that that do you think that they would say oh well this is just you pass you're fainting that's hyperventilation. That's what that is. You've breathed a lot and you've altered your breath. Because just to describe it for people listening, it's like it's sort of inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, come up and stand up onto the knees because your ass has been on your heels up till that point. Inhale, hold, exhale with a sort of a beat on the chest, as it were. I mean, obviously, I'm sort of making it very sort of succinct and rudimentary. But like then then you like i don't get it the same one like for a while i was doing these other yogic exercises and i was getting a buzz off them now i don't get the same ones i get them better when uh i when you guide the experience i have to say i wish i could do it all the time because i'm an addict and if something's good why do anything else ever you know but like um what do you think do you think that it's empirical proof that you can alter consciousness or do you think that a, a, a medic a doctor which oh, well that's hyperventilation and how do you um rebut or a repost that materialist perspective i love you know i love this question because it comes directly from the mind right it's like only the mind could conjure such a question the first time i experienced this breath my first thought was this is a hoax this is hyperventilation this is a i'm getting fooled i'm gonna get like they're gonna like take my organs do you know what i mean like i was i was um my mind immediately came in, it swoped in to ruin everything, which it, which it will do, which is what it's, it's kind of its job is to do. Um, and I no longer listen to my mind because one of the things that happened as I did this breath work more and more is that um, I realized that each time I did it, it was killing my ego. And like you, not this isn't an insult, but I have a giant ego, like I'm a big, I have a big personality. I'm, I take a lot of pleasure in being good looking and being funny and being the center of attention, all that shit. 
And I really felt hot. <laughs> I love your face. I'm not like that. Like, I don't I'm a nice guy. Oh, yeah. I'm a sweet little character. Oh yeah, you're so you're so you're so meek is the word that I come that comes to mind when I think of you. But you know, I'm saying that I thought that because my ego was so big, um, I guess what I found is the annihilation of a giant ego is the birth of a giant light source. But if you can truly be willing to kill your ego, like stand before it and say, I don't have any more questions, not gonna rationalize, not gonna ask any more questions. I'm just going to do what allows me to be part of this field. And what I have found is that it's been a marriage. I used to think consciousness, or like you're describing it, was the enemy of awakened states. I thought they were at war with one another. And as soon as I could destroy the mental blah, blah, and all the blah, blah, then finally I would become enlightened. And what I've learned through this process is actually if I cannot be present with both of those states simultaneously, if I cannot experience the whole rainbow of my flaws and my pooping and my death and my grief and my pain and my fear and my petty self-pity, all this stuff, and if I can't do that at the same time as I'm experiencing that like radiant, sexy, endless, no beginning, no end bliss, then I'm always going to be going back and forth. And I just got sick of the journey of going back and forth and back. Fuck it. If you can do it all at the same time, you never have to go back and forth anymore. Would you say, like in twelve step terms, that what you're describing is a kind of steps one, two, and three awareness that the individual, the limitations of your individual identity, believing that you are yourself, and that that's that your primary role is to be yourself and to be partial and loyal to yourself. Step two, uh, believing that you can change, that you can let go of drugs, alcohol, or indeed the idea of the self. Step three, that it will involve a kind of surrender a kind of absolute surrender. Is this what you mean by no longer inquiring? Do you see that sort of position of rationalistic inquiry as an, a kind of assertion of will? Mm. No, I, I see it as entertainment. You know, like I came here and I'm very, I've been kind of steadily killing the way that I entertain myself. And I have found many ways to entertain myself along the way, such as judging people and judging myself, tearing myself to shreds, being a bitch, you know, um, doing drugs, destroying everything that I touched. That I found it entertaining. You know, I liked Sid and Nancy. My heroes were Basquiat and Andy Warhol. I didn't grow up thinking, you know what? I'm gonna do like a 15-minute facial ritual this morning and then drink some celery juice. Like that didn't seem appealing to me and it actually took destroying um what i found entertaining to find what what i call god i'm not religious but what i call god this source that flows through all of us wanted for me and what that source want i think what's funny about the source is like people think oh well if i turn my life over to the devil it's like it's hot it's sexy you know i get to fuck you know, people and I get to do things that are bad and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, I think God, which is, you know, on that hierarchy, the opposite of that devil. We have this idea that God wants us to turn into some weird, like robe wearing nun walking around some monastery somewhere in silence. How the, how the fuck do we know what that source wants us to do? And I have found that every time I shut up and ask really, truly, what do you what do you want? it's always such an incredible surprise. Like everything that's surprising about my life came from me shutting the fuck up and asking that question. The um, loathing of the flesh, the kind of asceticism, the monasticism that often feels like the pinnacle of the religious experience, denial of pleasure than not like you know i'm at like you an abstinence person i don't drink i don't take drugs i don't look at pornography i don't i try one day at a time to objectify people all these kind of things. i like i work a pretty um rigorous program and much of it feels i don't want to say denial because i'm not that kind of a person but i do let go of things i do let go of things and i suppose the reason that 
there is this idea that God wants us not to be materialistic, even though the material world is part of God. And of course, how, how what else could it be? And there's nothing wrong with pleasure. It's just that these things are very easy to idolize. They're very easy to unconsciously revere. The unconscious reverence of sexuality, the unconscious reverence of it's the fact that we allow these things to replace God is what I would say is problematic. My own relationship with pleasure and what you described as entertainment as altered. I don't feel like I've overcorrected. I don't feel like that's ever going to be a problem for me because that kind of that side of things, you know, does its own PR, does its own work. And as a person that comes from an abstinence background, and you're abstinent too, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And like that, um, I know that behaviour, food, sex, etc., abstinence isn't an option because these are potentially nourishing life affirming behaviors but i suppose for me the bias is never the is never can never be the sort of um unbridled celebration of the power of that energy because i don't seem to be able to do it responsibly mm. you, you seem to be suggesting that you can um, well, I can't with, you know, actually, I don't know anymore. I got sober 12 years ago, and I was a heroin addict, a cocaine addict, drank a lot of alcohol, did every kind of hallucinogen, whatever. And so when I stopped, I stopped really hardcore. And I didn't I, I kicked heroin in two days, like in my friend's apartment. And it was so I wouldn't say that it was easy, but it felt like something had entered, a third force, as I write about in my book, had entered. And it became, it was over. Like, it was like, I was just never going to be doing that again. And today, 12 years completely sober, I don't do anything. I don't take ayahuasca. Like, I just don't do anything. Um, mm. I, I, I don't know if I couldn't drink normally today. I actually have no idea. But what I have found is that I don't care. Like, I, my life has become so incredibly juicy and delicious without the use of alcohol and drugs, I actually have no desire for that whatsoever. However, other things did enter the picture, right? Like sexuality became alivened by becoming sober. And I mean, first of all, having sex sober is like a trip in and of itself when it first happens. You're like, whoa, what? what's, this is like a level of vulnerability that I'm not familiar with, you know? And then Food was a really big issue for me. For 28 years, I've been struggling with body dysmorphia and um, what I would have called food addiction. And for the last three years, I went on what is called an intuitive eating journey. And I thought, honestly, Russell, like I really thought this was never going to work for me. Like I was like, I am a beast. I just come into contact with cheese and the whole thing is gone. Like I am an animal. Like I can't be trusted with sugar and flour, you know, all this stuff. And after three years of doing so many exercises and so much stuff that I really didn't want to do, I feel healed for the first time in my life. And I, and it all came from me realizing that I didn't feel safe being myself. I didn't feel safe with the fact that I was going to die one day. I didn't feel safe being me versus other people. So I would look out in the world and think, oh, it would be better if I was blonde or if I was tall or if I was this or if I was that. I couldn't just be yet. And the more I started allowing this embodiment, the less I wanted to harm this beautiful girl. I, I, I couldn't have even said that before, honestly, because I didn't really think I was beautiful. And I also didn't think of myself as someone who deserved caring for. I felt like caring for Biet was some kind of weird, like I had this fat Italian mobster that lived inside me. I think he's still there. I call him Tony. And every time I would try to do something that was healthy, he'd be like, what are you, a fucking Twinkie? Like eat the fucking pasta. Like we need to, what are you, you're from the street. You know, I grew up in the street. I'm from Queens. So like, I'm not used to, like I got punched in the face in junior high school and I was like, you know, crazy shit that I've been like mugged at gunpoint, almost raped in the middle of the night, like New York City, you know? So 
I had this protective layer. And what I found is that I am safe. I don't have to live like that today. And a lot of my food issues came from that, that stuff, that like hardening and me trying to be so cool and keep it safe. Mm. You didn't feel safe to be yourself. You didn't feel safe around the idea of death. With this, um, you, you, you 12 step person. Yeah. Do you like, so I am also, and my, um, 12 step program has a necessary kind of not deference to others, but I, for example, have, a mentor and i have a lot of the my sort of pr the primary 12-step support group that i belong to like what's really heartening about it is my the kind of my i usually in hierarchies i know where i like to be in those hierarchies in 12-step groups i'm it's their flat hierarchies you know they're service-oriented hierarchies and uh I have a lot of those kind of relationships where my skill set doesn't elevate me above my peers. Do you have that? Most certainly. Um, I would say that, you know, if there wasn't humility and the flattening of my ego, like a, a place where I could be completely dissolved, um, I don't think I would be able to feel pleasure. I really think pleasure comes from the dissolving of that ego. And it's not just 12 step. That's not the only place I go. Like I'll go anywhere now to, to be flattened and to be with humility. But I do think also there's a time and place for humility. Like my friend Arjuna has this wheel that he describes that I love. And the, the wheel says that enlightenment is actually like a four step process. And so the first step of enlightenment is enlightenment, right? So you have this white light experience, which I know I'm assuming both of us have felt and this feeling of like oneness with all things and the remembrance of who we truly are and what is really happening here. And that happens for a while. And of course that passes. And what that turns into is creative energy, right? So creative energy could be anything from launching a podcast to starting a business to becoming something in a trade or looking for romance, whatever. It's creative energy, right? And then creative energy turns into achievement, what he calls achievement. And achievement is like spreadsheets, emails, cold calls, like awkward conversations with people you think are cooler than you, like, you know, all this stuff that feels like a stretch for, it's almost like exercising the personality self. And what that leads to is humility, which I love. It's like, if you go through the whole route of enlightenment, creative sex flow creation, achievement, you will be hit in the face with that you are powerless. You have no power over how this goes. You are not the creator of what's happening. You are merely a beholder of the beauty and you get flattened. Whether that looks like rejection or your house burns down, someone dies, or you get um, an illness or you have some cellulite on your ass that you realize you hate or whatever it is, but you get flattened by humility. And only inside of humility can you find enlightenment again? You need to be on your knees. You gotta go down. No one's gonna find enlightenment while they're like making spreadsheets and emailing people, right? Yeah, I heard uh, it described once by you know, the famous mythologist um, Joseph Campbell as the, in the Christian story, you find that when they heard a king was coming, they naturally looked in the palaces, but the king is born in the stable with the animals. And as with your own sovereignty, you will find it in the low place. You will not. And when Eckhart Tolle came on here, he said you could find enlightenment on the private jet or you could find it in the prison cell, but you're more likely to find it <laughs> in the prison cell. Mm. I don't want to go to prison. Well, you've already been there. And so now I think your duty is really to find enlightenment on the private jet. And that's, I think, 
So do I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to continually be suspended <laughs> in a, in a cosy little capsule of privilege. I mean, you know, when you talked about entertainment earlier, I thought that was very interesting that we find ways of entertaining ourselves. We've been thinking a lot about sort of tech addiction because of the sort of spate of stuff, a very good documentary, The Social Dilemma, that's out on Netflix at the moment. I spoke to Adam Alter last week. He's just wrote a book called Irresistible about tech addiction and about the ability of these tech conglomerates to continually enhance their products exponentially until they, to really our choice about whether or not to use them is... <sighs> limited is limited so i wonder as we enter into this landscape how what techniques you think are going to be important for people to realize and actuate themselves i you know i've really been playing a lot with this um with tech addiction and also with all my addictions I used to think I was addicted to food, sugar, flour, and again, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, but it's been so long since I touched those. Again, who knows, right? But what I do know is that what I realized is that I'm actually addicted to a sympathetic nervous, my sympathetic nervous system, which in some people call the sympathetic nervous system fight or flight. And so tech addiction is actually an addiction to the fight or flight feeling. So when you realize that, you start to go into your body. Like, I don't think tech addiction can be healed by making rules, right? Like, I, rules don't work for me. Like, okay, I can use the phone four hours a day, but not more than that, and I can use it, blah, 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 blah. For me, that doesn't work. What works for me is feeling into my body and noticing, am I breathing? Am I nervous? Am I in compare and despair with people on social media? Am I going high on dopamine from all the likes I'm getting and comments on my posts and that kind of stuff. If I can start to measure, am I in my parasympathetic nervous system and then make a choice? Okay, I want to spend this amount of my life in my parasympathetic nervous system and I'm really not willing to visit my sympathetic nervous system for very extended periods of time. But I do think tech... I don't know if you've noticed this, but it brings you into your fight or flight response. Like you, you'll notice if you really pay attention, like you're breathing less, you're short, your breath is shortened, you're in a fear, uh, a fear state, and that's a natural state of interacting with. So what I've tried to do is actually bring in breath work, bring in embodiment techniques, even when I am handling my phone, because that is part of my job is to be on social and to be visible to the people that I'm supporting. You know that as above, so below thing, I feel that um, that even with um, more, even with older behavioral addictions around food, sex that we've discussed, it, there comes a point where, where I recognized oh, I'm manufacturing my own narcotics in my own biology. I'm creating my own, you know, dopamine, serotonin, whatever. And, of course, what's required, as you say, is an ability to remain present, remain aware, not to dive into that and lose your perspective immersed in the, you know, in the highs or or whatever state it's inducing. But I find that still the only way I can modify those behaviours. See, I suppose one of the things that might be levelled at shamanism and kind of new ageism is that it can be a bit traditionless, a bit rootless, a bit like it's being made up on the spot. Whereas I suppose like a monotheistic faiths for all of their evident social, cultural problems have a clear ritualized ceremonial way of dealing with the problem the problem the challenge <laughs> of the flesh or at least domination by the flesh domination by primal desires i recognize that you know you don't there's no point giving up social media give up the person that needs social media give up you give up the self no point giving up alcohol give up the person that needs alcohol give up the thing that the point of attachment you give up as you say the parasympathetic nervous system i don't know enough about neurology or anatomy to know whether that's the 
you know the exact way that i obviously take your word for it but uh, what i require additionally in order to do that is clear ritualized behavior that's why i like couching my own recovery i have no bloody choice but like i also like couching my recovery in a 12-step process because i think all right how do i um how do i map what i know about drugs and alcohol onto tech right i acknowledge it's a problem i believe it's possible to change it i recognize i'm gonna have to accept help and access an, an aspect of my own awareness that's currently dormant or inaccessible at least i'm gonna probably need to inventory this behavior so i get a better understanding of it i'm gonna have to share it with another person identify the problems and what it is i'm trying to conceal or um medicate through this and have I harmed anybody? Stay aware, etc. You know, you know what the twelve-step program is. Um, but like, I do need ritual. Like, I do for me in enough to like. I do need a kind of. You're only going to be looking at your phone for one hour. You're not going on those social media sites now. Of course, I think these kind of programs are beautiful because they are amorphous and there's as many ways of working them as there are addicts or whatever. But I, I um, do you not have concerns about? an unstructured and intuitive approach to recovery and the uh, limitations that that places on the replication of these, i.e. if there ain't a technique, how are we going to get other people to do it? Mm. You know, I do believe that we didn't accidentally get born into this era and... If you and I were born 500 years ago, or if we were born a thousand years ago, we would be dealing with very different social dilemmas. There wasn't anyone making documentaries a thousand years ago, but I guarantee that the problems were thick um, with people being scalped in the street and women being raped on the sidewalk and like, you know, the plague or whatever was going on at that time. And I just think a lot of times that you know, when we look at it as though, oh, this is dangerous. Yeah, it's really dangerous. Social media is dangerous. Robots are dangerous. Um, you know, all these things are super dangerous, but it, we have the capacity to find enlightenment underneath any circumstances. And enlightenment, what I love about enlightenment, and I'll say something about fourth way here, because, you know, I'm a teacher of this thing called fourth way. And that's what my, hmm. my book is all about. And fourth way is supposed to be, or what it is, is enlightenment in the real world. So Marcus Aurelius is an example. Abraham Lincoln is an example. Rumi is an example. Like both the first two examples I would sort of associate with kind of, you know, certainly Marcus Aurelius, Stoicism. Abraham Lincoln seems at least kind of stoic, although I don't know what his deal was. Um, Rumi, you know, I, I understand, of course, is a Sufi, and it seems like a sort of a more mystical and somewhat more abstract theological undergirding than the first two. This fourth way, I heard it in relation with like Ospensky and I don't know, like isn't it sort of some sort of Russian shamanism thing? What, what the hell is it, Viet? Well, I mean, I could, in, in a nutshell, my, my, my book really dials it down and makes it super simple for people because I've been studying it with my father my whole life and that's my life's work. But in a nutshell, like really simply, fourth way work is dividing your attention so that you live both in the space of the soul and in the space of um, life creation and achievement simultaneously and you no longer make one more important than the other. So that means that to Marcus Aurelius wasn't a um, just a philosophical thinker. He was a, an emperor. Abraham Lincoln wasn't, you know, like, you know what I mean? Abraham Lincoln wasn't... Pressure. <laughs> yeah, he was an emperor. Like, you know, so being an emperor requires quite a bit of kabuki. You put on the suit, you go out, there's a parade, you're being photographed. I mean, maybe not then photographed, but and you're a celebrity, like there's a lot of roles in this world that when you take them on, have a payment. There's a thing called the law of payment. And the, the way the book works is that it's, the way fourth way works is that it, it says that we're actually underneath 48 laws on, on a very normal day. So you wake up and you're in 48 different types of prisons, basically. Like you said, I don't wanna find enlightenment in a, in a prison, I'd rather find it on a private jet. Fourth way is saying, baby, you in a prison when you're on that, on that jet. 
And so if you can get with that, if you can understand that your life is the fleeing of that prison at all times and make that your motive, then you don't need to give up worldly possessions. You don't need to give up shopping at Barney's. You don't need to give up um, the, you know, the glitz and the glamour and the razzle dazzle of life as long as you're not identified with it. And that's covered in what's called the law of identification, which is a fourth way term. Mm, the law of identification. The law of identification. But I do want to look, I have an issue with uh, like I know you to a point and I feel like you're great. And I'm sure your book don't just sit there is great also. I but like this is my concern be it. What about um I don't like the idea of training people just to f to be better capitalists. You know, like uh, and training people like this is how you can succeed within this system. Meditate in order that you can, you know, like even that. Look, I got a foot in each camp still. Of course I have. I've still I'm dogged by it. You know, I'm dogged by it. It's getting easier. It's getting better. But like I, as you say, the kabuki of putting on the suit, putting on the mask, living in that world, going into that space, you know, but that. Whilst I still don't feel fully and held enough to let go of it, absolutely, I feel more connected than ever before to something that I don't feel like I had conscious access to in my in the previous incarnations of my addiction. And my intention is to be free. Now I reckon there is, you know, I recognize there's a degree of imprisonment. I'm going to require oxygen. I'm going to be living in this body. I've got all sorts of obligations, some of which are terrific. But like, uh, do you not feel concerned that we accept the limitations of a system that is a kind of an individual, uh, an invisible, excuse me, economic ideology that we're sort of forced to live within. And even when we're talking about spirituality, we're saying spirituality within these confines. Um, I, yeah, I don't think it's a hindrance anymore. I kind of, I see it as a privilege to be able to be on a planet where everything is very fucked up. And I think it's a privilege to be on a planet where everything is upside down. And fourth way actually says, if you're living in a world that is upside down, but you become right side up inside of it, the effect that you have on people is very, it's, it's resonant. There's a resonance, there's a sound that occurs when we attune ourselves. Now, am I upset about what's happening in America and the political system right now? Like, do I cry about it in my meditations? Yes. But that's not to say that if I'm not present to both sides of myself, both the enlightened bliss Christ consciousness side of myself, and also the raw, pissed off American who's like, you've got to be kidding me if this is what you think is a good idea for our country right now. If those two can't coexist, then I'm not going to be able to be effective. And everyone's effective in a different way. Some people are effective politically. Some people are effective artistically. Some people are effective through laughter. Right. So everyone has their own note that they're playing on this planet. But I don't believe when I hear you say, you know, that one day you'll need to let it all go so that you can finally be free. I love all of you. Like, I don't think there's anything to let go of. It's just all so great. And the body and the finality and the pain and the kabuki, all of it. And I find that the more I embrace all of it and I'm in lust with all of it rather than being selective. I think that's really a big transformation is the selectiveness, like enlightenment versus material gains. It's like, how are those things separate? Only by the mind are they separated. Well, I suppose when I think of it, though, say Osho, you know, who was a pretty smart and amazing dude and wrote and came up with some fantastic stuff doesn't have the same resonance to me as Gandhi who by all accounts was not a man without flaws but like I feel like you know like uh, that what I dig about Gandhi is that he went for yeah fuck it fuck it I'm gonna just wear a blanket and tend to the goats <laughs> and see where this ends up 
and I'm pretty certain I'm, that it's going to be with a bullet. You know, whereas like uh, like Osho, yeah, what's no problem having a Rolex wrapped around me? No problem untold Rolls Royces. Even though I like, you know, I've got some red stuff of his that's like, wow, that's this dude knows the score, man. You know, like there's something I don't know if in me as a former hedonist I have this kind of puritanism like now the kind of puritanism of the ex-addict and the kind of well we shouldn't be doing that and that's a bit saucy like you know like i don't know if i have that or or what but like uh i i like what you're saying i just feel like i've been burned by that fire so much yet that i i don't think i'm ever going to be at ease with because <laughs> every time i open the door a little bit you know like it's chaos happens mm. You know, I think we all know for ourselves which teacher is calling us and which enlightened being is calling us. And I feel like we know which direction freedom will be found in. And oftentimes we're wrong too. So I think I'm, I'm open to that in my journey. Like I've been really, really, really wrong. Like one of the things that I was wrong about was with the food and body stuff, I really was like, I'm gonna lose 10 pounds. I'm gonna get in a bikini. I'm going to talk about how I've mastered intuitive eating and I'm going to do it all on Instagram. And it's going to be, I'm going to come down from the holy high mountain and show everyone how free I am. And that never happened. Eventually, I had to actually start sharing. You know, I'm like this spiritual teacher, famous, flown all over the globe to speak to people, transforming their lives. And I had to get really humble and get weird and come out to my audience and say, you know what, I'm really struggling with this food and body stuff. And as soon as I said that out loud, and I really thought everyone's gonna stop following me, they're gonna not buy my book, who wants to follow a spiritual teacher who's fucking confused and can't eat a, can't eat a dessert normally? And it was the opposite. It was like I became so human in that moment and connected to all people who have the same problem. And also the problem was weirdly removed. It was almost like a fifth step. It was like a, a public fifth step. So I guess what I'm saying about being wrong is that I, I've pursued, oftentimes I've pursued spiritual teachers, like you're saying Gandhi, could be Osho. And what I found is that when we come into a state of enlightenment ourselves, like Russell, Biet, it looks different from anyone that's ever come before us because it, it, it's it, its own uniqueness. It can't be like anything that's come before it because there's only one you, there's only one me. Hmm. That's, that's going to be a relief for people to know that there's not going to be a spate of me unleashed elsewhere. <laughs> a fleet. A fleet, a spate, a horde, a flock. Um, yeah, that's good. We're going to do any... We can't really do any breathing exercises here, eh? Can we? Can we? Why not? All right. Um, where would I put myself? So I'm just so going to adjust let's, myself. So how I do it when I do it on podcasts and also when I do it online on my... If you go to my Instagram, you can like watch my little videos. I don't do the getting up part. So you can do... Why? Because it's just as effective. That's the best bit. <laughs> I know you think that because you've, that's how I've started you on the journey. But as you get more proficient with it, you can literally do it. I've done it sitting on a stage about to speak to thousands of people, like, like at an auditorium. And I was doing it on stage. I can do it. I've mastered doing it to such a point where no one even knows I'm doing it. And I'm getting wasted. And I'm looking out at the crowd and being like, I'm tripping on acid right now and they have no idea and the best part is i'm grounded right so then as soon as i it's time for me to speak i'm right there i'm not like oh wait i'm really hung over from that shit that i just did so give me a second to recover like the breath work has no side no side effects all right well let's do this breakfast exercise do you want to offer some disclaimer like along the lines of you probably shouldn't be doing this if you're driving a car right now, or operating heavy machinery, or carrying a child, or aiming a rifle, you should probably uh, stop. Yeah, do not do this breath work if you're driving a car or operating heavy machinery. You could faint, and it is you do enter into an altered state, which causes you to lose control of your body sometimes. So it is important to just be somewhere safe. And also remember that you may need to brace yourself. So having your hands, what I do, I'll show you, Russell, how I do this when I'm not doing the up. So it's just in, then out. 
So we do three of those. And then on the fourth one, you hold it at the top, puff your belly out, and elongate your chin looking up at the ceiling or sky above you. So the fourth one looks like this. And then hold the breath, hold the breath. We hold it together, and then you hit the chest twice and let the air out at that point. I do want to also remind our audience that it's super important to relax your body if you want to feel the effect of this, because um, you're going to want to vinyasa it and be like, because you're doing a lot of things. You're holding your breath, you're puffing your belly out, you're elongating your chin, and then you're hitting your chest. And there's a thing that sets you like tense. I got to do this right. Don't worry about it. Imagine that your body is like jello and keep bringing yourself back to the jello-y state. With the, just on the final fourth breath or with the three preceding breaths also? Relaxing the whole time, but on the fourth one, you hold, hold, hold. And as you're holding and puffing the belly out and elongating the neck, you are relaxed as much as possible while doing that fourth breath as well. Yeah, because I do get a bit like, right, I'm going to control my spine. I'm going to bust up some lower chakra stuff. I'm going to pull in them bundas. I'm going to show this breath what's what. I'm coming into the next dimension. I'm a pyramid. Here, I'm coming through, baby. <laughs> right, so this time I do it, I'll do it relaxed. Great. Okay, well, I'm so, I've actually been with you many times while we've done this, and I see you having the effect, so I know that you are relaxing. And you can't actually have the effect unless you relax. Maybe I do it different when I'm on my own. Oh, maybe. Yeah, you were saying that, so maybe. So everyone, three breaths in and out, fully filling the belly and lungs. And on the fourth breath, hold, belly out like you're pregnant, chin up, hold, 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 hold. You can hit the chest to release the air. I noticed that you are doing a sort of an accompanying scoop with both hands as you do the inhalation. Is that right? You're sort of as if scooping... Oh, you're doing your palms face out. Palms facing out, scoop up. And then down. Mm, yeah. This also helps okay. to direct the viewers who are going to be watching this at home. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. For if we put so this it's, on YouTube. So it gives it kind of like a that. And then the other reason is because you might pummel forward, faint. And so your hands are there to catch you. All right. Okay. And mm -hmm. eyes can remain open. I often actually play music during this. You might give us a some sort of um, problem if you do that. Oh, okay. We might, yeah, we, maybe we, you know, we can, right. I'll send you a song. We can edit it in later. Hmm. It's my song. I'll give you permission to use it. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, then that would be no problem. <laughs> okay, here we go. Inhale. One. Always through the mouth. Exhale. Inhale. Two. Always through the mouth. Relax and release. Inhale three. And release. And the fourth one, hold at the top. Belly out, chin up. Relax the body. Belly out, chin up. And then hit the chest, release. And we'll do a couple more, setting an intention to relax even deeper. For everyone listening at home, we are relaxing completely. We are only inhaling through the mouth, filling the belly and lungs. Begin one. And release. Inhale two. Relaxing the body, release like jello. Relaxing, inhale, three. And release. And on the fourth breath, hold at the top, belly out, chin up. And then hit the chest, release. We are both staring at technology right now. We have microphones in our ears and we're staring at screens. Notice how the entire essence of what we're doing changes when you do the breath. The screen 
melts and transforms. So this is another way of answering the question you had before of how do we interface with technology? And my thought as we're doing this breath is everything is the same once you're in this other state. Technology. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, yeah, I get your point. Except, of course, what I have to say is that, you know, you, most of the time when you're dealing with technology, you're dealing with economic interests continually. And I rec but and also it makes me wonder about that whole kind of strata of um, spiritualism where people kind of are like, well, listen, man, I'm cool. I'm out of it. You know, like and I mean, even quite sort of uh, elevated beings are would be happy to hang with anybody from anywhere. Yeah. It's like it's all an illusion. It's just a game. I wonder if uh, like the sort of if our ethics and principles migrate into this space. You know, I recognize that that they they're like that nothing is just one thing. Nothing is oh technology is really bad. That's reductive and stupid. But like there is the dominant interest, the dominant ideology behind these objects the same as the dominant interest behind agriculture or the industrial revolution, both of which had benefits. Ultimately, these benefits come about their establishment of uh, dominance hierarchies that, by their nature, uh, disempower lots of people. I wish we could do some more breath and maybe that opinion will change. No, no. I actually had an insight to say that I do believe, Russell, that it is part of your essence and part of your calling on this planet to transform some of these um, systems. And I've heard that from you many times when I've heard you speak, and it's very... It's very specific. It's your note. And I don't think that these things are contradictory for everyone. I think you specifically and a group, a small group of people like you were placed on this planet to change some of these systems. And that's the feeling I get from you. Well, that's good. That'll give me something to do. <laughs> like, not like you don't have enough to do. Okay, we're going to do one last breath. Before we do, bring your hands together in prayer. And for anyone listening or watching at home, we're not praying to some bearded dude in the sky. We're praying to the third part of ourselves. We are remembering that we are a trinity. We are body, mind, and then we are some invisible, incredible, invisible thing. That when the sexuality of this body, mind, and this third thing come together, we finally get the pleasure of meeting ourselves. So as you bring your hands together in prayer, just say an asking. Uh, in my book, I call it the law of asking. Just ask for help. You don't need to know what you're asking for help from. Just say, please help me. Please help me. And then deep breath in through the nose. Please help me. And then we'll begin only through the mouth, inhaling one, arms up. Relaxing the body, exhale. Inhale two. And release. Inhale three, fully relax. And release. And the fourth one, hold at the top, belly out, chin up. Belly out, chin up. And then hit the chest, release the breath. Thanks. Thank you. Well, Biet, it's been wonderful to talk to you on this episode of Under the Skin. I hope that your book don't just sit there. Your take on the fourth way is a success for you. And uh, I hope we get to chat more and do more of this stuff. I believe we're going to do much more of this stuff. And I'm excited to, once this weird thing is over, I'm excited to do this together with lots of people. It's going to feel good to be together with humans again. Oh, yes, the humans. Gotta love them. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Biet. That was really good. I'm just tripping out. Well, not tripping out. I feel pretty relaxed, actually. It's nice. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Biet Simkin. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. You can tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Russell Rockets with the hashtag Under the Skin. Remember, go sign up to my mailing list, russellbrand.com. Gain exclusive mailing list only news and video content. Plus, that you'll be the first to hear about. Like, I'm going to do some live shows. Did you know that, Jen? Yeah. Do you want to do some live shows? You liked it? Did you see those ones in Regent's Park? Yeah, it was there working. I know. I'm just stuck. Keep on doing the conversation, Jen. <laughs> yeah, it was there. Yeah, they were. <laughs> they were good, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, I attended. Yeah. Jen, look, thank you. Thank you. Jen, I'm trying to elicit some content from you. Um, All right? What am I supposed to say? <laughs> Jen, I deplore you, but I'd like to finish with these words. Luminary <laughs> is a very fine platform. Demaya, your work has been excellent. Well done. Keep going. Charlie, splendid. Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. I've got new glasses. <laughs> Jenny, you've got new glasses. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, and this week, Biet Simkin. Next week, we're going to have... Who might we have? Um, Would it be Tim Chin? No, he's banked. He's banked. He's banked. <laughs> he's banked. We're banking Tim Minchin. He'll be in the bank. Yeah. What else, though, might it be, then? We don't even know. No. Do, no. Do you know? No? no? I hope it's another one of those tech experts. I hope it's Jonathan. Jonathan Haight, why is he your favourite? I, I read his entire book. Oh, wow. Yeah. A real pat on the back for you then, Jen. <laughs> An entire book. It was book. really good. Well, I've read the Bible, Jen. <laughs> but everyone has. I haven't, actually. Is anyone? Christians. Christians will have done, won't they? They'll have like, give it a good reading. Yeah. All right, sorry, I'm eating nuts now. Under the skin, luminary. Thank you.